I'm going to read some scripture for us this morning, but before we do, let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, we do just stop and take in how much you love us. We just thank you for that. Just open the eyes of our heart, Lord, right now that we may um, truly hear your word. And we thank you for Jesus who makes all that possible. In his name, amen. I'm going to read um, from Psalm 78, um, verses 35 through 58. And um, this is talking about the Israelites and how rebellious they are. And it so reminds me of, unfortunately, myself and, and just us in general as a church. <clears throat> they remembered that God was their rock. The Most High God was their Redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities. And he did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh a passing breeze that does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. <clears throat> they did not remember his power. The day he redeemed them from the oppressor, the day he displayed his signs in Egypt, his wonders in the region of Zone, he turned the river into blood and they could not drink from their streams. He sent swarms of flies that devoured them and frogs that devastated them. He gave their crops to the grasshopper, their produce to the locusts. <clears throat> he destroyed their vines with hail <clears throat> and their sycamore figs with sleet. He gave over their cattle to hail, their livestock to bolts of lightning. He unleashed against them his hot anger, his wrath, indignation, and hostility, a band of destroying angels. He prepared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave them over to the plague. He struck down all the firstborn of, Israel, of Egypt, the firstborn of manhood in the tents of Ham. But he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. He guided them safely so they were unafraid. But the sea engulfed their enemies. And so he brought them to the border of his holy land, to the hill country his right hand had taken. He drove out nations before them and allotted their lands to them as an inheritance. He settled their tribes of Israel in their homes. But they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. Like their ancestors, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. She's a tough act to follow sometimes. I really do have emotions inside of me. And the Lord, um, man, the Lord has blessed me personally with some amazing women in my life. Uh, Sherry is one of them. Uh, I am the only guy in the world who got lucky enough to marry her daughter, Caitlin. So um, that makes me special. I tell myself that. 
Uh, <laughs> thanks, Sherry, for the affirmation. That's good. Um, man, it's just, it's a good morning. Uh, it is a, it is, I don't know what your life is like, but it, it's a good morning, and I'm reminded of uh, Scripture when it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And uh, it is just good to come in, to sing together, to be reminded of the love of Christ, to be excited together about what He's doing in our community, and um, man, it's just good. So, um, uh, some amazing women in my life, um, Sherry, my wife, Caitlin, also my mother, uh, who is not here, but uh, I had this really awesome mom who survived four boys. I choose my word very intentionally when I say she survived four boys. Uh, she has done it. And I can remember growing up, um, her bathroom, and I, again, choose my words very intentionally, it was her bathroom. Um, it was a hub of activity in the morning. So you can imagine mom, her bathroom, four boys, all trying to get to school, it was a little crazy, and um, because of that, she would get up in the morning before everyone else, uh, very sacrificially, and she got herself ready, and then she was just around, like, trying to do her makeup in the mirror while four boys swarmed through the bathroom trying to get all their stuff done, um, axe body spray, the whole nine yards. Uh, that was just real life in the lawyer household growing, growing up, and uh, I can remember a couple of things about that bathroom. One was that she always had scripture verses, post-it noted, uh, on the mirror, and I didn't think much about that when I was growing up there. Now that means a whole lot to me. But the other thing that was uh, way less Christian, uh, <laughs> I love you, Mom. Uh, she always had um, she always had country music blaring on this little bitty radio on the counter. WWBL, the Bullet, one hundred six point five. <laughs> Remember it like it was yesterday. And around uh, two thousand three, this song topped the charts. And sadly, it's become formational for me in some ways. I'll, I'll get to it. But the lyrics say this. See if you can recognize it. It says, last night we went to bed not talking because we'd already said too much. I faced the wall. You faced the window, bound and determined not to touch. We've been married seven years now. Someday it feels like 21. I'm still mad at you this morning. Coffee's ready if you want some. I've been up since five thinking about me and you, and I've got to tell you, the conclusion I've come to. I'll never leave, I'll never stray, my love for you will never change, but I ain't ready to make up or get around to that. I think I'm right, I think you're wrong. I'll probably give in before long. Please don't make me smile. Anybody know what it is? I just wanna be mad for a while, right? <laughs> right, I just wanna be mad for a while. And um, this, is a, this is a really sad statement. When I think about my personal life, when I think about the way that I interact with people that I love, I can see how that song, which would get stuck in my head in mom's bathroom before I went to high school in 2003, was really formational in how I viewed relationships. That song, it gave me permission to pout, right? Permission to pout, like as if we needed any more. It gave me permission to pout. And I mean, the song is a good song, right? Like You're like, she wanted to stay. She's like, I'll never leave, I'll never stray. And everybody's like, oh, that's so dear. And, you know, I just want to be mad for a while. Can't we just be mad for a while? I've, um, I've gotten into a bad habit that I'm going to have to work on. I've gotten into this habit of watching an episode of Shark Tank at the end of the day. Um, I, I get on YouTube TV and I watch Shark Tank probably too much. And so the other night, actually just this week, Caitlin was frustrated with me. And um, 
She says, I'm, I've got Shark Tank on the iPad. We're sitting on the couch. And she says, I'm going to bed because I feel like I'm battling Shark Tank for your attention. And that's ridiculous. <laughs> we all laugh because, guys, we, like, it's, like, it's like the new form of controlling the remote control, right? It's like, I got the iPad. We're watching Shark Tank. So I did the totally, you know, holy and godly thing. I sat out in the living room for an extra 20 minutes and watched Shark Tank while she went to bed just to show her who was boss, right? Like, she can't tell me what to do. I just want to be mad for a while, right? Isn't that weird? I mean, like, we laugh because we kind of, maybe that's not your situation, maybe that's not your thing, but, but we like to, like, play this tug of war where we somehow think that we're maintaining control in a relationship or a situation. It's so weird. Why do our hearts do these weird things to us, right? The question more specifically for me is, why is my response to my wife speaking truth to me to get defensive and to get prideful and to get hurt? Today, we're gonna, uh, we, we've been going through this series, Leaving Your Comfort Zone, where we've followed the Israelites and Moses through the book of Exodus early on. And today, we're, we're uh, we're looking at Exodus 7 through 11, and so we're going to pick and choose from some of those passages. We're not going to preach all four chapters, but you heard the gist of what's happening in the story in the psalm that Sherry read. We're coming to a phase where Moses had, has finally built up the courage. He and Aaron have come, and they've spoken to Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh, we talked about last week, he, um, he doubled their work, right? Like he, he pounded back on them when Moses first appealed to him. And now we're entering into this section in Exodus where we read about what's famously known as the ten plagues. And so we're going to think about those things today. And we're going to take a bird's eye view today of someone who is famous for his hard heart, Pharaoh. He's famous for his hard heart. And uh, I share some of those stories that I shared at the beginning because I think it's easy, much as Sherry alluded to, it's easy for us to have a hard heart or for our heart to be hardened by God and we don't even recognize it. We don't even realize it. And we justify it by saying, well, I'll never leave. I'll never stray. I'm sticking here. I just want to be mad for a while. We have to be careful where we get our theology or the way we think about God from, right? Like we can sing a song and we think it's okay to be mad for a while. And, and we have to ask ourselves, what would Jesus say about that? So as we jump into Exodus 7 and, and, and through 11, we pick up in Exodus 7.14. Moses and Aaron have walked in, they've, they've said everything, they've performed the miracles that God had given them, and um, Moses throws his staff down, right, and it turns into a snake, and, and Pharaoh stonewalls them. Like, he just, he's not even affected by it. He brings his magicians in, they replicate the miracle, and, and he sends Moses and Aaron away. And in that moment, Pharaoh sends Moses and Aaron away, and then we come to this verse, Exodus seven fourteen. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. His heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. This pattern of Moses and Aaron speaking to Pharaoh and then Pharaoh stonewalling them leads to uh, the ten plagues. And over and over again, Pharaoh's heart keeps him from, from making what over time had to seem like the logical decision. Let the people go, right? Like we read the story from this bird's eye view thousands of years later and we're like, dude, after all these bad things that we hear about happening, why don't you just let the people go? And for some reason, Pharaoh can't do that. His heart is hard. 
And I think when we read this account, we tell ourselves there is no way that we could be that thick, right? There's no way that we would end up like Pharaoh and that we would continue to deny that God was moving in the middle of this. There's no way that we wouldn't pick up on the hints. There's no way that we would stand up to all these things that God is doing. But as we follow this journey of Pharaoh's hardened heart, we see the the absolute power, the sovereignty of God. And at times we even read that God is hardening or at least allowing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to happen. Now, that's tough for us, right? Because as humans... We, we value free will. And so we wrestle with this idea of God controlling our hearts as, as well we should. But we can't deny that our hearts are all susceptible to being hardened, right? If each person in this room can't think of at least one instance, probably even in the recent, few, uh, recent history, that your heart has become hard towards someone or, or possibly even towards God, then we're fooling ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 talks about this hard heart. I want to read from the message translation. It just, it's, it's very colorful. It says, The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Not as they pretend to be. These unwanted hard hearts, they, they do some serious damage to us. And sometimes we don't even realize what is happening. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Wow. Now we're talking about just being mad for a while, storing up wrath for me on the day of judgment when I have to face God. Ugh feeling a little icky. There was an older uh, gentleman. He had lived his entire life out in the country. And so he really valued peace and quiet, right? He, he wanted to sit on his porch and just hear the crickets. And as he aged, his family had moved to the city and it became nece- necessary for him to move to town to be closer to medical facilities and to family that could help him. And uh, his greatest anxiety about doing that was losing th- that peace and quiet of his rural home. And, and so his children, they helped him uh, find a, a home. He moved into a neighborhood of, of newly built homes, and, and they were building them up around him. And so he was awaiting his new neighbors, trying to find out who's going to move in. And so on one side, there was a young family that moved in and had three boys. And on the other side, there was a single guy with a Harley. It didn't take long for them to all figure out that their lives didn't jive with the older guy that wanted peace and quiet, right? And uh, a week later, um, you know, the bomb had gone off. And the, the old man had made his way to both places to rant about this excessive noise of the three boys and of the Harley. So a week later, the neighbors, they, uh, they get together, and they buy a basket of goodies, and they knock on the door of the old man. And the old man's like, well, well hi, what are you doing? You know, secretly thinking in the back of his mind, well, they've come to say they're sorry. You know, maybe there's actually hope here. And they said, well, this is a little basket of goodies that we just wanted to say sorry before we move. We don't want to you know, bother you. We're going to move. Well, the guy's like all excited now, but he's trying to hold him back. And he's like, you're moving? Where, where are you moving? And the Harley owner looked at him and said, I'm moving into his house and he's moving into mine. Right? Our heart is so deceptive. It's so tricky. And, and before we know it, everything in life is centered around us 
and our heart is hardened towards the people around us, the things around us, it's so difficult to understand the heart. It is deceptively wicked. Our hearts might be hardened when we uh, intentionally avoid people. We don't even realize we're doing it, but then the next thing you know, we're trying to stay away from certain people. Our hearts may be hardened when we intentionally hold things back from people. We don't want to tell them the whole story, or we don't want to tell them the truth. Our hearts might be hardened when we begin to complain about people to other people, right? All signs that God is hardening our hearts. Even worse, though, is when our hearts are beginning to be hardened towards God. We might be hardened towards God when we don't have anything to say to God. But why? Why, God? We might be hardened towards God when we lose hope. We just don't see the purpose or the reason. We don't think it's worth it anymore. We might be hardened towards God when it seems impossible to read our Bible or to pray. You know, we, we may have grown up in church. We may know all the answers. We may be like Nicole, right? Like, we, we think we have everything that we're supposed to have, and yet, for some reason, we just can't seem to connect with God. And, and we have to ask ourselves, why is that true? Many times it's because our hearts are hard. We do a lot of different things to try and soften our own hearts. We try to give things away. We try to serve. We try to do the right thing. There was a believer once who had given up everything, right? He, he just, that was his pursuit. He said, I'll serve. I'll give everything away. I'll, I'll live poor. Like, I, just, I, just want to, I just want to be at peace with you, Lord. I want everything to be right. And d- despite the fact that he did all of those things, he could never seem to find peace in Christ. And he became very lonely. And in the middle of that loneliness, he started to sense that God was asking him for something more. And he's getting frustrated, like, God, I feel like I've given you everything, right? Like, I, I, I serve, I, like, I'm tired of serving, God. I, like, I've given things away, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to live a life that honors you. He says, I've given you everything, what do you want? Jesus said, you've given me everything but one thing. And the guy said, well, what is it? Right? He'd given everything else away. Why not give him that one thing? And the Lord said, you haven't given me your sins. You haven't given me your sins. I know that sounds so simple, and yet it's so profound and so hard and so difficult, right? It's like, I'll, I'll give away the material things. I'll give away my time, I'll give away my resources, I'll give away my energy, all things that we should do in response to how he loves us. But the one thing that he needs, the one thing that he wants, the one thing that will truly help us to soften our hearts and become more like him is when we give him our sins. And we don't want to do that. We just want to be mad for a while. We have deceptively wicked hearts. Hearts that harden really easily and remain hard, sometimes when we don't even want them to. But what does this mean about the God that we're worshiping to and singing to today? What do we need to know about God so that our hearts don't remain hard towards other people and towards Him? That's where Exodus 7 through 11 comes into play. In Exodus 7 through 9, we read about some miraculous events. I mean, miraculous events. And the level of, you know, whether how they happened is debated by many people throughout the ages. And I'll let you dig into that if you would like. But, but I am convinced and I believe that these are miracles of the one true God. It all begins as uh, the water in Egypt turns to blood. 
It turns to blood. And the magicians, they replicate that. And so next, uh, their frogs are just present everywhere. And when Pharaoh pleads for mercy, Moses prays and the frogs die. But even then, that's not a good solution because an enormous stench, you can imagine dead frogs everywhere, rises in Egypt. Well, after that, the dust of the ground becomes gnats. And it's, there's something really telling at this third miracle. When the dust becomes gnats, the, mir- the, uh, the magicians of Pharaoh, they come to him and they're like, this is the finger of God, right? We think about our hard hearts. Sometimes even when people come and tell us that God is doing something bigger here, we, we just can't hear it. We can't hear it. Next, flies appeared everywhere. Everywhere except Goshen, that is, and that's where the Israelites lived. So now you have this crazy miracle in, the, in Goshen where the Israelites are. There's no flies, and like right next door, there's flies everywhere. The fifth plague involved the Egyptian livestock dying while the Israelites' livestock lived. And next, boils came on the skin of the Egyptians and their livestock. And if you've ever had a boil, that ain't no joke. I've had one. I don't want them all over my skin. I cried like a baby. And as the seventh plague loomed, God tells Moses to say this to Pharaoh. And it's key in understanding something really important about our God. Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. Right? God tells Moses to say this to Pharaoh. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose... I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and you will not let them go. May we learn from Pharaoh and from the word today that you cannot outlast the everlasting God. You can't outlast him. You will lose you cannot outlast the everlasting God. I, uh, I frequent our local coffee shops. Uh, swing by sometime and see me. Six in Maine or Harvest. I'm, I'm at both. But at Harvest, they have uh, what's called the bottomless cup. The bottomless cup is a beautiful thing. It is super helpful on those days that I've got a ton of email and sermon writing to do. And uh, one day I walked in and there was no coffee in my body yet, and that's a problem. And um, <laughs> I was trying to order one of those, one of those bottomless cups. But you know when you haven't had coffee and you're a little cloudy anyway, and I don't know, maybe the kids have been like in your bed all night. Who knows? Like, just picture all the things. So I'm walking in, a little bleary-eyed, and I can't think of the word bottomless. Like the word will not come to me. And so I'm like... Uh, I want coffee. She's like, yeah, we have that. <laughs> like, um, like, I can't think of what it is, but like, yeah, like I want to I drink coffee. Like, I'm going to be here for a while. I want to drink coffee all day. Like, she, she's like starting to look at me like, yes, like we have like, I don't know what you want. And finally, what comes out of my mouth is, I want the everlasting cup of coffee. <laughs> She's like, oh, a bottomless cup. I was like, yeah, that, but I like my name better. (laughs) So uh, to this day, when I go in, if it looks like I'm going to be working or if I get there early, she's like, do you want an everlasting cup? (laughs) I'm like, yes, that would be great. 
the everlasting cup. Um, you know those feelings you get when you go to one of those all-you-can-eat or all-you-can-drink places? It's like, I'm going to take advantage of the system. I got I to drink so much coffee. I got to eat so much food that, you know, they, they lose. <laughs> well, I have that whenever I get the everlasting cup. I'm like, I'm going to drink so much coffee. But there's this, there's this crazy thing that, that goes on. Uh, no matter how much coffee, no matter how much I love coffee, I think I'm going to drink. I can only get to like two and a half cups before I have to either drink some water or go to the bathroom or eat something because I'm like, I just can't do it. So uh, I'm wired after two. So did you know, random fact of the day, did you know that if you drink four eight-ounce servings of coffee, that's 32 ounces for those of you who aren't math majors, 32 ounces of coffee in a four to six hour period, you are exceeding the maximum intake of caffeine and you're putting yourself at risk for a caffeine overdose that could cause your heart to stop. Didn't know that, but I'm glad that I do after some research this week. <laughs> Got to work on that. So I can't get past two, right? And here's why I tell you that. I love the everlasting cup of coffee at Harvest. I will continue to get the everlasting cup of coffee and call it the everlasting cup of coffee knowing that I can't outlast it. Knowing that I will never take advantage of the system. Knowing that the everlasting cup of coffee will always beat me. I will give in every time to not winning that showdown. But how many of us on the daily go into a similar showdown with God? And somewhere in the back of our sinful nature, in our head, we're thinking to ourselves, I'm going to get one over on God today. I'm going to be able to live life the way I want to, and he can't do anything about it. We're unwilling to back down from our desires, from our thoughts, and, and from maybe our biases in the face of the everlasting God. It's like we live our lives with this false belief that if we just keep doing things our way, God is eventually going to give in. He's going to meet us where we're at. It's a fun phrase for Christians that we like to use, right? God's just going to meet me where I'm at. I can outlast God. One day, God will see it my way. Sure, we don't say those things brazenly, but in the back of our minds, you know, it's like I'll never leave, I'll never stray, but I'm just going to be mad for a while. It flushes itself out when we say things like, well, there's no way that God could expect me to pursue him while I'm trying to get my career or trying to get my business off the ground. I'll, I'll, when I get done with this, I'll be back, God. It'll be okay. I'm just going to harden my heart to what you're telling me to do for a season. There's no way that I can be as close to you, God, while I'm raising children as, as I was when I was single or without kids. Maybe our relationship with God is, is dependent upon whether things are good or bad. And you're like, I'm going through one of the worst seasons of my life, so how could God be in the middle of this, right? My heart is hard because of that. I'm just going to try and figure this out on my own for a little bit. Or maybe we're on the other side. We're like, I'm just going to enjoy life while I can because it's the only life I got. I'm just going to enjoy life, right? It's the only life I got. Is it? Or is there life after this one that's more valuable than this one? Scripture is pretty clear that there is life after this one, and that life is either going to be really good or really bad. In the words of Rosemary from last week, there's only two kinds of people in the world, lost or saved. Which are you? And then for those of us who maybe still are sitting out there thinking, I'm good. I'm in church, aren't I? I want us to read Scripture in Romans 9. 
And I want us to try and elevate our view of the everlasting God one more time. Romans 9, beginning in verse 16. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It says, so it's God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others. So they refuse to listen. You can't outlast the everlasting God. You cannot outlast him. And yet our hard hearts will many times deceive us and make us think that we can do things our way. Let's jump to the ninth plague, darkness. We read about this plague in Exodus 10, beginning in verse 21. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. This make us uncomfortable, right? To think that the darkness in our lives that we would want to run away from, many times we're stuck there, and that our hard hearts can be caused by the Lord. You can't outlast the everlasting God. So what should you do? What should you do? If you have any sense that there may be hardness in your heart today, what should you do? Repent. But repent fully. It was really interesting in these plagues, many times Pharaoh would relent, right? He would, he would say, okay, enough's enough like he would ask Moses to pray or he would say well you can go like we read here in this passage you can go take your families but don't take your animals right it's like I'll give you a little bit God but I, I won't give you the whole thing so when we talk about this idea of repentance it's difficult right to repent we if you're like me and you grew up in church you're like what does repent mean and like it means to turn around and go the other way and that's true in a sense, right? But what we often miss is that repentance requires all of us. It requires our whole heart. It's not something that we can do halfway. It's not something that we can give part of ourselves to God. It's, it's the whole thing. You see, Pharaoh repented partially multiple times, but never wholly, and, and he only did it out of fear. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says, Fear-based repentance makes you hate yourself. But joy-based repentance makes you hate the sin. How many times do we repent out of fear of what God might do, right? And then we hate ourselves because we, for some reason, come back to the same sin over and over and over again. 
But how many times do we get to tell the joy-filled stories of how God delivered us, redeemed us, as he did the Israelites, when we give our whole self to him? C.S. Lewis said this about the night that he was converted from atheism. I gave in. I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed. I love this phrase. It says, perhaps that night I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. You know, we think of coming to the Lord, we think of our salvation as this joyous thing, and it is, but what we often miss is that it begins in this, this moment of guilt and sorrow and repentance. It's very difficult. And so the question is, how do we turn to God fully? Because the temptation is to just do something different, right? It's like, I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps today, and I'm not doing that anymore, and I'm going to do this tomorrow. But here's the thing. You can't just do something different and never be sorry. That's repression, not repentance. Even when we know something is wrong in our lives, if we try to change it by ourselves, we're repressing that and we're not repenting and giving it to the Lord. So how do we repent? How do we turn to God fully? It begins in our emotions. It works through our intellect. And finally, it comes into our will and we see it in the fruit of our actions. Let's walk through that process, all right, scripturally. We think about our emotions. Psalm 38, verse 18 says, But I confess my sins. I am deeply sorry for what I have done. I am deeply sorry for what I have done. You see, you can't turn from anything. You can't stop anything if you're not really sorry that you did it. And so... We think about this practically, and I want to encourage us as individuals and as a church, as we think about this idea of repenting and turning, to begin to pray, Lord, call to mind my sins, but don't just call them to mind. Help me to grieve over them. Help me to be sorry for what I have done. Because the world around us is telling us that those things are okay. And when we begin to compare ourselves to the world, we don't feel sorry for the things that hurt the one who saved us. We get stuck in this phrase so often, and we're stuck here when we, whenever we have no self-awareness, whenever we have too much pride, and whenever our faith and our life in Christ is based upon our comparison of ourselves to others. So many of us say we repent, so many of us say we know the Lord, and yet we're stuck here because we don't really feel sorry for who we are. And so our repentance must begin in our emotions, truly feeling sorry for our sin. But it must also move into our intellect. Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Right? We can't do this until we're sorry. But once we're sorry, then we can come and we can say, All right, I'm, I'm, I want to look and think through this. God, why is this a sin in my life? Why is this something that I'm struggling with? Determine what's at the root of your sin. Well, how do you do that? You've got to keep asking why and tracking back. And at some point, you're going to get to a point where you find that there's a promise of God that you're not believing in. So the question to help you discern this is, what promise of God are you not trusting? What promise of God are you not trusting? And when you figure that out, you figure out how to repent of your sin. Take, for example, let's say you find yourself being frustrated with a family member, a, a child or your spouse or maybe extended family, and over and over again you find yourself with a short fuse with that person. So you begin to ask the question, why is that true? 
What's happening when I'm getting frustrated? And, and maybe you point to stress as something. And, and you can think about all the, the ways in your life that you're stressed. Work, finances, who knows what else, right? And, and, and so you think about stress as a, as a cause. And then you ask yourself, well, what, what promise of God am I not trusting in the middle of that stress? Maybe you're not trusting that God has a plan for your life. And that what you're going through, he sees. Maybe you're not trusting that he is going to give greater gifts to his children than what you could give to them, right? And so the things that you're stressed about doing and providing for your family, God already has. I don't know. It's just an example. But we know that all sin is unbelief. So we must determine what it is that we are struggling to believe to be true about God and return to that, right? Let us test and examine our ways and then return to the Lord. God, why am I doing this? What's the root? And how do I return to your truth? We're stuck here if we can't forgive ourselves, like Nicole talked about. Or if we're too impatient to let God heal our sin. Sometimes that's a big issue. There's a lot of sin in our life, and it takes time for God to heal that wound. So we go from emotions. We begin to think about and process what is true about God. And then that eventually causes our will to be changed, right? Like we desire action. We desire to be with God and to be holy. We see that illustrated in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son knows the truth, right? He knows the truth and, and he runs away from it. And he has these moments, he works through this process where he realizes that the best option for him is to return to his father. And I love the action-oriented passage in Luke 15, 18. When he says, I'll get up, I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. We try to jump to this in repentance, right, to take action. And, and we can get there quickly if we will allow the Lord to help us, but, but we, we can't skip the first two steps. But we must take action by seeking forgiveness from those that we have hurt along the way. You have to walk away from the pain points. If stress is the pain point, you have to eliminate things that are causing the unhealthy stress, even when it hurts. Notice that I don't say if, right? This action, this new way of life is always going to cause pain. And as a result, we're stuck here if we're afraid to live differently, if we're afraid to leave things behind, if we're afraid to embrace the change that God wants to cause in our lives. So do you have a hard heart? And do you feel more equipped to repent and return to the Lord? It's going to be a, a process, right? You may decide to do that today, but, but there's some work to do. And it starts with grieving and feeling sorry for your sin. Testing, examining your ways, and then walking in newness of life. I love this quote about repentance. It says, if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Repentance is urgent. There's some really good news about repentance. The joy of the gospel is that restoration is on the other side of repentance. Restoration is on the other side of repentance. You know, in those early stages of repentance where the guilt and the sorrow can seem insurmountable, it can be tough we find ourselves asking God why. We, we find ourselves losing hope, right? All the things, uh, the conditions of a hard heart. Our community group, um, which meets on Tuesday nights, and we have food. If you want to come, Ryan and Megan, who sing, they're in our group. 
Anyway, he came in a couple weeks ago. I'm gonna, I haven't asked his permission. But we, we did like, when was the high point and the low point of your week? And he brought this phrase out that has stuck. He was like, man, it was just like a big old pile of depression. <laughs> like, you know what? There are some days that are like that. And we've come to use that to describe kind of that, that early feeling of repentance. Like when you know there's sin, when you know your heart is hard and, and you're not sure what to do, you're just like stuck in that, ugh, ugh. It's just no fun. If you, um, if you were a part of our CCC family at the beginning of the year, you may remember us talking about the theme of 2017 being the idea of restore. And we were seeking to, to be restored in our seventh year uh, to, to really just find rest in the Lord. We talked about the idea of a Sabbath and, and how God would you know, renew us and, and, and all these things. And in the middle of our busyness and our crazy lives, it was like, oh, that sounds wonderful. It's like a vacation with Jesus, which does sound pretty good. It is fall break. A few weeks ago, I sat with our preaching teaching team, and we were reflecting on that theme and that idea. And when I asked the question, like, let's think about what that's looked like in the CCC context this year, several of us just, like, widened our eyes because we begin to reflect on how super difficult 2017 has been. It had been difficult personally and professionally. It had been difficult as a church. We were all just kind of like living in a big old pile of depression. <laughs> and finally, one of us said what everyone was thinking. 2017 has pretty much been the opposite of being restored. But then we begin to think, had it? Was it? You see, we can't let our emotions deceive us, church. We can't get stuck at the first stage of repentance. Because when we feel the guilt and weight of sin, we must be reminded that on the other side of repentance is a place with Jesus where sin and shame are powerless. Where joy is restored to us through our relationship with him. And I ask each one of us here today, have you ever known that kind of joy? Have you ever known the joy that comes with being on the other side of repentance with Jesus? Or have you been trying to do this thing by yourself for all these years? Restoration is always on the other side of repentance. And so we know that in this place today, we return to the Lord. We return our emotions to him. And we know that as we do that, we're going to decide right now to dig out the root of our sin. And allow God's truth to heal it. And when we determine that, we're going to arise with great joy and go back and walk in newness of life with the Father. And that is exciting. That's the gospel. This paragraph says it much better than I do. It says, before this moment of realization and return, before this moment of repentance, our hearts are restless. Can you identify? They're always searching for an answer and yet at the same time always running from the answer. For our hearts are truly restless until they rest in God. And that rest in God can only come on the other side of repentance. Then the soul is not only at rest, but it enjoys a quiet and joyful rest that is the radiance of the divine mercy of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever 
experienced that kind of rest? Have you ever fully repented and turned to the Lord? The band is going to come back up today. And if you need to do that, if you've never given your whole heart to him, you can have a conversation with God right where you are. You can reach out to him, seeking his forgiveness and telling him that you are truly sorry. You can feel the emotion of the wrongs that you have done. If you've never experienced the joy of Christ today, uh, you can join us in the back and tell us your story and let us help you to figure out what your next step is. Maybe today you know you need to take next steps, but you don't know what they are. You don't even know how to begin that conversation. And we would love to just help you and see if we can hear and and together in the Lord figure out how you can move forward. We're not responding today. That's my typical line, right? We're going to respond to the gospel. We're not responding today. We're returning. As a church, we are returning to the Lord because we know that on the other side of repentance is restoration. 